This is Tom Lee from NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Fiona Scott Morton, the Theodore Nuremberg Professor of Economics at the Yale University School of Management. Now, it's almost exactly five years since Fiona and I first met, and I remember because it was not an easy day for me, and it was not an easy conversation. We were sitting on opposite sides of the table in the Department of Justice, and I was representing a provider organization that was under investigation by the Department of Justice for whether we were using our market power to command high prices to the detriment of consumers. That organization was Partners Healthcare, and I say that because I'm not—I'm uh, I'm pretty confident that the issues that we were discussing that day are not really spe- specific to Partners alone. They're really generalizable to lots of other stakeholders in healthcare. In my remarks that day. I talked about the many, many good things that my colleagues and I were doing that were not covered or were not adequately adequately covered by our fee-for-service payments. You know, I was talking about mental health, inpatient beds, social needs stuff, keeping expensive burn unit facilities and other technologies available 24 by 7. And my point was that we might be getting higher rates than others in the marketplace, but we weren't paying our personnel more. We were doing more good things that they might not be things that society valued. And I remember after going through my carefully prepared remarks, I remember you listening and nodding, and then when I paused, you said, that's all very nice, but no one gave you permission. And I, I was confused, and I didn't know what you meant, but then you went on to tell me. Uh, can you summarize the point for our audience of, that you were making for me that day? Sure. A provider with market power has the ability to extract a lot of revenue from their client base. And if you're a mission-driven organization like Partners is, you're then going to spend that money on mission. But the issue for the consumer is that might not be the, the use of the money that they most prefer. What if the consumer would like the burn unit to be available less often, not 24-7, and instead have lower premiums. That consumer isn't just given a choice about that. That consumer is not asked, would you like lower premiums or would you like this additional healthcare quality that we at Partners are excited about? Instead, Partners, because of its, or anybody, the provider with market power who's got, who's got these funds available, can choose to use the funds for any exciting research topic or investment that they feel is is pro-mission, um, and that might be helping people to some degree, but it might not be their choice. There might be better things that you could do with those dollars that would make people even healthier. For example, if they had lower premiums and therefore more money, maybe they could go on a holiday and that would give them less stress, or maybe they could afford to buy more fresh fruit and that would give them lower blood pressure and better health. I mean, there's just many choices outside the context of the provider that people might want to uh, pick for ways to use those dollars. Well, you know, I think it's a sign of just how engrossing the work of healthcare is that most of my colleagues and I uh, had not really thought of your point. At least I hadn't thought of it that day. I'm, I'm secure enough to admit it. And uh, I think you know that I actually refer to that moment as my Fiona moment when I talk about it in various settings. And I've been brooding about it other since. And my colleagues and I on the provider side, you know, we tend to think that we're good people doing good work. Why can't everyone just leave us alone and get off our backs? 
you know, you teach a lot of physicians and other healthcare providers uh, in, in various courses. And I know that I'm not the only person you've met that had the tunnel vision uh, issue. Now, what is your reaction to that perspective? Well, it's very natural. I mean, these are mostly physicians who spent their whole lives working on technologies and therapies to help patients. They want to do more of it, and they're given resources because their organization can extract those resources from the marketplace. So it is absolutely logical for people to do this, and, you know, not not bad. I mean, there's no moral content to this, really. It's, it's natural and and right for the provider to want to take that money and go out and do good things with it. The problem is that we have a competition issue in healthcare where the marketplace is not giving the right signals. So suppose instead of having market power, instead a hospital or a provider were subject to normal amounts of competition, marketplace competition. That would impose some discipline on what they did with their extra money. First of all, they wouldn't have so much extra money because people might say, oh, look, this provider over here is cheaper. Even though they don't have gold-plated chairs in the waiting room, I'm going to go there because I don't mind foregoing the gold-plated chair. Or a more concrete example, the the nurse um, spends two minutes less with me, or the waiting time till I get an appointment is an additional week, but I'd rather go there because it's cheaper. Well, a provider facing that kind of competition is going to have to invest in lowering costs um, and isn't going to have that extra money to have machines with gold plate on them and and other kinds of of, uh, services that maybe consumers would rather not have given how much they cost. So if you have a marketplace with competition in it, then the provider gets the right signals. Then when people really want a flu clinic that's available in lots of places at convenient times, the provider who provides the flu clinic gets a lot more business. And uh, that's the signal that, that we want in a marketplace to say, yeah, consumers really value that investment, that innovation, and, and you should go out and do that one. So, you know, you're, you're painting a picture where colleagues, my colleagues feel competition, and that makes us... Uh, work to be innovative and efficient at at the same time. You know, one example that you and I spoke on the phone about recently was a provider organization with a pretty socioeconomically disadvantaged population uh, that's that I told you about that's been spending a lot of resources addressing literacy in their patients. They've been hiring all these people to teach their patients not just how to understand medical things, but to read, because a lot of them couldn't really read. And this is an organization that's just barely in the black, and they want to do even more to address social needs in that population. Uh, And they're pushing for higher payments from their payers to support that. Now, your reaction? My reaction is that that's not what your healthcare premium dollar is supposed to be for. It's supposed to be for health that I would argue that a, a provider in that situation, I mean, it's a, it's a bad situation and you want to help the patients and the way to help them is to go to the relevant local government, city or town or state, assemble all, all the other providers and other stakeholders who care about literacy and raise the red flag. This is a huge problem. We have citizens who can't communicate with their providers over their health care. We need the the government, society, volunteers to be providing some literacy um, and not make literacy a reason for higher health care costs, um, that, that those should really be driven by the health care part. 
also partnering perhaps with community organizations that are doing the real work of doing this, but not investing in a way that you're taking away resources that might be needed for, well, things like burn units. And uh, so yeah. let me turn to the burn unit example. And, you know, I, we brought up burn units when we were down there at the Department of Justice because not that many years before there had been that terrible nightclub fire in Rhode Island and a whole bunch of people got brought to Boston because, uh, you know, we're not that far away, 45 minutes, but we had burn unit beds available in Boston to take care of this tremendous surge. It was terrific that Boston had those beds, but having those beds, which I hope and assume are lying empty right now, uh, but, but, but uh, you know, generating costs as they lie empty, uh, how do we think about things like burn unit beds and how do we pay for them and how should provider organizations be thinking about them? So that's a really, really good question, and that's really the heart of, uh, you know, the hard questions in health policy. We have to think about how much we want to spend on health according to how much it's worth to us at the margin. So what do I mean at the margin? Well, let's imagine we add another burn unit bid. Suppose we we decided that there should be more burn units and we were going to build them in every town across America. Okay, how many millions of dollars would that cost and how many lives would they save? They'd cost many millions of dollars and they'd save hardly any lives. So that isn't a good use of investment. Suppose instead we said let's expand prenatal care and expand that to all you know, low-income and moderate-income women. How many millions of dollars would that cost and how many lives would it save? I don't know the number of millions of dollars, but it would, I know that the, the literature tells us it saves lives and, and it's fairly cost-effective to save lives. So that's an activity we want to carry out. Building more burn units is an activity we don't want to carry out in the scenario we've got here. And maybe we even have somewhat too many burn units, considering how much they cost and how many lives they save. We can't spend all of our money on health care. Imagine if 90% of GDP were spent on health care, we'd all be alive, but we would have nothing to eat. We'd have no iPhones. We'd have no holidays. We'd have no uh, cars. It would be a pretty grim existence. Not clear why you want to be alive if you have nothing to eat uh, and no place to live. So it's, you know, it is a, it, it's not the case that we can just say, oh, buy it all. Okay, we can't buy it all. So how do we make a decision about what not to buy? And that's a complex social choice. You see other countries in Europe having their governments choosing what not to buy. Here in the United States, we essentially have a combination of the government and the marketplace choosing what not to buy. And the marketplace doesn't always do a great job. I take that if we, that day, if we've been able to continue our conversation over a glass of wine, you might have said to me, you want... You want places like my hospitals to consider and even build some burn unit beds so there's some around, but you want us to be sort of restrained in how many we built by our ability to create efficiencies elsewhere in the other care we delivered, as opposed to just go to the marketplace and get paid more. I wouldn't even say, yeah, so that's partly right. I wouldn't even say create efficiencies somewhere else. I'd say ask whether how much the burn unit costs, and how many lives it saves. And 
and, and maybe consider calculating that number across a few other of your subunits in your hospital or in your activities. And figure out, wow, this one is incredibly cost-effective and this one is not. And this one is cost-effective in general, but I don't need more of it. Like if I built more beds, I wouldn't be saving any more lives because all the people who need to be saved already have a bed, right? So we don't need more beds. That's the kind of reasoning I'm talking about. Efficiencies, if you can get efficiencies in other parts of the organization, do that anyway, regardless of what you do with the burn unit. Wrapping up, you know, in the five years since we had that conversation, I think that I, I've, I've like learned to, you know, see the world a bit more from your perspective. And I, I've come to think that you're, what you said earlier on is really true, that competition among everywhere at every level of the healthcare system is a very, very essential part of the problem. And, and that you're concerned that day that my organization didn't have enough competition. Well, we won't revisit that issue, but competition is important. And, and having no restraints is not good. If I were to ask you, like, you know, if you were to, like, put yourself in the position that I was in that day, you know, with, you know the, the leader of a healthcare organization, like, not necessarily a partner, but a Yale, where you are, what would you be telling the leaders about plunging into that kind of marketplace? Clearly, you don't want them to fight off and deflect competition. Uh, what you'd like from them? Yeah, I'd like them to think about competition as a healthy thing that helps them direct their activities in the direction that consumers want. What do consumers want? Not what do research scientists want or what do uh, donors want or something like that, but but instead thinking about what is it that people really need because we've, we're starting to reach the upper limit of what we can afford to pay in healthcare costs. We're seeing tremendous social tension in this country because we don't have money to pay for schools and roads and uh, all the low-income people who need healthcare and everything else that goes into a productive civil society, infrastructure and so on. Why not? Because we're paying such high healthcare bills. So they can't go up. And I would like to see the leaders of healthcare organizations think about the kind of innovation they can do that takes a procedure and causes its cost to fall by 70%. Maybe it's not better. Maybe it's the same quality it was before, but it costs a lot less. How about that kind of innovation instead of all the innovation going to making the procedure very slightly better and costing twice as much? Okay, that's uh, where we need to move. Well, Fiona, I, I think what you say makes a lot of sense, and I hope in the next five years that we find ourselves sitting on the same side of the table instead of the opposite one. And uh, <laughs> That and, would be great fun. Yeah, and then we'll bring you back on any Jim Catalyst, and we'll, and we'll talk about it more. So thanks again. And I think our audience really appreciate your comments today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.